Oh, you can put that there. Oh, okay. That's fine. I thought that was for me to sit on. All right, you guys can be seated. Okay, it's Monday night. You're in church. The Niners are winning 10 to 6. I just wanted to help you because I checked. But I, I checked before. And so I, I want to do a couple things. One, I want to honor your time tonight because I know you worked all day and you got to work tomorrow. So I don't want to do a long meeting at all. But, I want, I, but because you took the time to come out tonight, and there's a lot of you, and I appreciate it, uh, um, I, I want to I do a Bible study that I couldn't necessarily do on a Sunday morning. I want to give you something I can't necessarily give you all the time. Um, so you might want to get a notepad out or something to take some notes on because um, this is, this is going to be um, past seminary level Bible study, okay? I didn't, I didn't learn any of this in seminary, so um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. It's an honor to be with my friend again, Pastor Stephen. He's awesome. I, I, I love him. I've, I, I've been to ball games with him. I've, he's one of the few pastors I think I could vacation a little bit with, and we could do that, and it's fun. On, on your way out, you'll see all of our stuff. Please come by and get something. Uh, 100% of that goes to our main mission in the world, uh, which is to take care of the poor and the afflicted. So come out and grab um, what, what you're doing. Uh, what you're going to hear tonight is in my brand newest series out there, so you can, uh, you can, check, you can check that out, okay? It's very important when you're studying scripture to consider historical arc. What I mean by that is, is what is the history story behind the story? You have to consider where the world was when, when it was written to, to be able to interpret it properly. If you do not you will run into some real credibility problems with people who don't understand the Bible, and you'll make God seem like a lunatic, okay? Let me, let me give you an example of what I mean by this. In Deuteronomy 21, it says this. Now, this is, this is a, uh, I'm going to start teaching night in Luke 23, okay? But I'm just giving you an example of what I'm talking about. In Deuteronomy 21, it says this, and this is a, I'm trying to quote it, but I'll miss a few words, but this is the general gist of it. It says, when you take over a piece of land and amongst the women you find one that is desirable to your eyes, shave her head, clip her nails, allow her to mourn the husband you just killed properly before you take her in as your wife. And after you've done that, if she displeases you, you must not sell her as property, for you have disgraced her. Thus saith the Lord your God. It's the word of God. Our God is love. Now people, look, where do you even start with something like that? Did God say it? Yeah, he said it. So, so how many of you women are excited about God's feelings about women? Let me say it again. When you take over a city and amongst the captives, you find a woman who is attractive in your sight. Shave her head. Clip her nails. And allow her to mourn the husband you just killed before you take her in as your wife. Is God really like that? See, if you... If you interpret scripture outside of, his, of history, you run the risk of making God sound like a lunatic. The great Pulitzer Prize winning God historian Karen Armstrong says, 
that that is one of the nicest things ever said about women up to that time. And here's why. Up until that time, if you took over a city and you found a woman that you just liked, you could take her as a sex slave. She would be your property. And then you could buy, and when you got done with her, you could just buy her and sell her. So, so you didn't want it, you didn't have any use for her anymore, so you'd sell her to the next guy and sell her to the next guy. So if you had, the, if you had the, the misfortune of being a woman in a city that was taken over, you were going to be doomed to sexual slavery for the rest of your life. Deuteronomy 21 changes that. It says, first, you cannot treat her as property. You have to let her mourn. To let her shave her head and clip her fingernails, those were the traditional signs of mourning. And property was not allowed to mourn. Only human beings are allowed to mourn. So God says, if, you're, if you find someone attractive in your sight, you cannot treat her like property. You must treat her like a human being. That's number one. Number two, you cannot take her as a slave. You must take her as your wife. And if she's your wife, then you're responsible to protect for her and you're responsible responsible to provide for her, and you're responsible to give her security. When women in 2000 BC would have read that scripture, there would have been a party amongst the women. It would have been the men going, really? Is God that nice? See how important it is to have historical arc when you're interpreting scripture. Now, that's just one example of many. Like I'll give you another example because we're here on a Monday night. We may as well study the word. Based on what you know about the Bible, is God in the Old Testament, was he for stoning children? How many of you, when you were growing up, did your parents say, you know, in the Old Testament, we could stone kids for stuff like that? <laughs> My dad told me that. In the Old Testament, you didn't obey me, we could take you out and stone you. Now, does the Bible say if a child is rebellious to take them out and stone them? This is what it says. It says, if you have a son who refuses after many attempts to listen to you, you can take him out to the edge of the town and have the elders of the town stone him because of his drunkenness and his gluttony. So is God pro-stoning children? No. How many seven-year-olds do you know have a problem with drunkenness and gluttony? Imagine that. You got this little seven-year-old who's been in the Johnny Walker. <laughs> in my experience, seven-year-olds don't have a problem with gluttony. Seven-year-olds are more like, hey, one more bite. One more bite. See, the issue is not, it doesn't say child. It says son. And it says after repeated attempts, if your son is causing havoc in the community, you can take him out and stone him. But you have to understand historical arc. The Mishnah, which is the Jewish compilation of civil and religious law, says that that command was never taken literally in the history of Israel. There's actually two words for the word stoning. First meaning is to take a stone and throw it at somebody. The second meaning means to cast something out. The idea is, is that if someone is causing havoc in your community, it is the father of that person's responsibility to remove him from the community until which time he'll come back and play ball in a way that makes everybody edified. Now that's a whole lot different than painting a picture to people that God is pro-stoning seven-year-olds. So I'm giving you these examples of how historical arc is very important in terms of interpreting scripture. Now with that in mind, let's look at Luke 23. In Luke 23, I want to talk to you tonight about the cross and one of the messages in the cross. Because you have to understand, most of the Bible was written by people in slavery. So when free people try to interpret slave language, it gets very, very confusing. And then we make everything about heaven and hell, 
instead about being free. Okay? So this is, a, a, if you could bring the slides up for me, my friend. This is an account of Jesus' trial. This is what it says. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation, and he opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. Now I want you to notice they do not accuse him of blasphemy to Pilate. Why? Because Pilate wouldn't have cared. What difference does it make to Pilate if this guy's blaspheming a Jewish God? It makes no difference. What they accuse him of is treason. Treason. Now this is central. Central to the idea of Messiah is him being a king. It comes from Isaiah. It says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And the government will be upon his shoulders. People ask me all over the world, why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? Why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? Why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? Very simple. In a Jewish mindset, if Jesus was Messiah, he should have taken over the world. And remember, Jesus died. No, nobody thought of Jesus as a ticket to heaven. That's something that was made up way later by white people. Okay? That is, some, that, is not, that is not in the concept at all. You never see Jesus show up and people go, Oh, great, you're here. Can we go to heaven now? Never, ever. You never see Jesus one time ever invite someone to heaven. Ever. Jesus dies and rises again. And how much does he talk about heaven? None. How much does he talk about hell? None. I find that amazing. What I find more amazing is no one asked him. This cat dies and comes back, and no one asked him what happened. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Jesus comes back, and what did they say? Oh, great, you're back. Are we going to take over Rome now? Is it now you're going to establish your kingdom? They were looking for Messiah to establish a kingdom. The reason some of the Jews don't believe in Jesus is because he didn't fit their concept of what Messiah was. And because God didn't fit their box, they lost out on that belief. How about you? Are you missing out on anything in God because God's doing something that doesn't fit what you think is true? So they don't accuse him of blasphemy. They accuse him of treason because central to understanding Jesus and central to understanding the New Testament is the New Testament is written by people enslaved in Rome. They're enslaved by Rome and they're looking for a new king and Jesus is the answer to this new kingdom. Does that make sense? So, they, so when, they, when, when they get tired of him, they, accuse, they say, we can get rid of him. We'll just tell Pilate that he's trying to set up his own kingdom. And in the Roman Empire, you try to set up your own kingdom, they have an answer for you, and that is the crucifixion stake. So this is what's going on here. There's all kinds of things that don't make sense in this, and I, I want to, if you're paying attention, I want to sort of open this up in a way, because if it didn't make sense to me, it likely doesn't make sense to you, and so I want to see if we could like journey in this together. Let's keep reading. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. Next slide. We'll just keep going. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. In other words, you're accusing him of being a rabble-rouser and someone trying to establish a kingdom. He is sitting here peacefully not speaking. Why would I charge this man with treason? I don't see, I don't see any evidence other than your, your claims. Watch, watch what happens. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea. See how they accuse him again of stirring people up. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and came all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. 
Next. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, now there are so many things about this story that make no sense, okay? So I want to ask the questions, and then I want to go through and answer them. And then, I, then, more importantly, I want to apply it to people who live in Hayward in 2013, okay? All right, so let's look at the questions. Next slide. First, if Jesus' main message was to believe in him to go to heaven, why kill him? I mean, if you have a guy going up and down the country saying, listen, pray a magic prayer so that when you die, you can know you go somewhere else, is that really worth killing him over? I mean, at best case, you're a lunatic. Just let it go. But they want to kill him for another reason. That does, so it doesn't make sense. My, my first question when I read this passage was, why would you want to kill a guy that was that nice? Like, he was nice to everybody. Very popular. Why would you want to kill a guy who was that nice? I mean, if his main message is to, is to go to heaven, why kill him for that? If his main message is to take care of the poor, why kill him for that? That, that falls in the category of obvious. Another question when I read this passage was, was if you want him dead so bad, why, why not kill him yourself? Why, use, why, not, why do you need Pilate to do this? It's not like you couldn't trap him in the middle of the night and, you know, take care of business with some sort of first century Jewish gang or something. Why, why wouldn't you do, why not do it that way? And the answer is very simple. Jesus was very popular in Jerusalem. Very popular. That's why they had to do it in the middle of the night. They had to sneak around in the middle of the night so that most people were in bed. And by the time they woke up, the whole thing was over. Or at least so far down the line, they couldn't stop it. Remember Jesus rises from the dead and he meets two people on the road to Emmaus. And, and he's like, why are you crying? And they're like, what? Were you born yesterday? They killed Jesus, you know? Remember they didn't recognize him? And Jesus was like, really? Was he like a good guy? I mean, what? And so there was all of this stuff going on. Jesus was very popular. But the part that makes the least sense to me is this. Why was Pilate and Herod even in Jerusalem? What, what, next slide. What, why were they even there? And how in the world do you get the head honcho of an entire region to get up at 2 a.m. to hear a complaint about one guy? That makes no sense. I mean, I don't live in California, but how long would it take you to get a case to California Supreme Court? My guess is a long time. And if you had a... It, it, this story is sort of like if, if you and you had a problem with Stephen, it would be like y'all driving to the governor's mansion, wherever that is, knocking on his door at 2 a.m. and saying, excuse me, can you settle a dispute between us? That makes no sense. But yet in this story, one group of people have a problem with one guy and the head honcho of the whole region is willing to get up out of bed at 2 a.m. to try to handle it. And not only him... This number two guy in the whole region was willing to get up out of bed. Pilate said, let's get Herod involved, and Herod is more than happy to get involved. So in this situation, you have the number one and number two guy in the entire Roman Empire in this region willing to get out of bed at 2 a.m. to handle a complaint about one guy. That makes literally no sense, especially since the fact that history tells us that Herod and Pilate both lived in Caesarea, not in Jerusalem. So here's my question. 
One, why kill Jesus? Two, why are the head honchos willing to get out of bed at 2 a.m. to handle it? And three, what were they even doing there? Now, to understand this, you have to understand a story. There's got to be a story behind the story that makes the story make sense. And the question is, does anybody know the story? The answer is, yes, I do know the story. And I want to tell it to you. This story started in 17 B.C. What you're reading there in Luke 23 actually doesn't start in Luke 23. What you're reading there actually starts in 17 B.C. when a guy named Julius Caesar dies. Julius Caesar was the first Roman emperor. He was the first guy to sort of combine the whole world under one rule. He also claimed to be God. It's a pretty heavy claim. He claimed to be God. He also invented the salad. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> All right. So 17 B.C., Julius Caesar dies. And when he dies, the one thing that suffered the most was his claim to be God. Because if you know your history, you know that Julius Caesar died by being stabbed in the back by his best friend. So his, the logic was, was if you were God, you should have seen that coming. Right? And so they had a credibility problem. So at his funeral, his son named Octavius, Octavius took on the name Caesar Augustus. At his funeral, his son, Caesar Augustus, claimed that strange stars appeared in the sky. And he got the astrologers to testify in public that strange stars were appearing in the sky. And the logic was, was that my dad is in fact God and the strange stars that appear in the sky are proof that my father is God and now he has taken his seat amongst the gods and the strange stars. So Caesar Augustus validated his deity claims through strange celestial signs. Okay? And Caesar Augustus said this. He said, well, since my dad was God, now this starts to make sense. Since my dad was God, then I am the son of God. And since I'm the son of God, I should be worshipped. And since I'm the son of God, I should be worshipped primarily. So Caesar Augustus started a 12-day celebration of his birth. It went from December 19th to December 31st. And he called the 12-day celebration of his birth Advent. It was called the Advent of Caesar Augustus, and it lasted 12 days. On the first day of Christmas, aren't you listening to me? You see where all that comes from now, right? So Caesar Augustus says, we're gonna, this is what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate my birth every year for 12 days. And everybody needs to know I'm the son of God. Well, if you're the first century Roman emperor, how do you get word from Spain to India that you're, in fact, the son of God. There's no electricity. There's no internet. There's no printing press. And town criers are highly unreliable. So how do you do that? Here's what they did. they did. it. They did it by printing it on coins. Because money is the one thing that goes all the way across. So Caesar Augustus printed three advent coins. The first one said this. Caesar is Lord. And you flip it over. No other name on earth by which men can be saved. Second advent coin said. Caesar is Lord. And he'll be a multiplier of bread for all people. Third Advent coin said, Caesar is Lord, and there will be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. 
Do you understand Luke chapter 2 a little better now? In the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that all the world should be taxed. And on and on and on it goes. And there was strange celestial signs. And wise men from the east were following stars. Essentially, Luke's saying, you validated your deity through strange celestial signs. You want strange celestial signs? Here's some signs for you. Huh? For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and his name is Christ, and he is Lord. And there will be peace on earth and good will to all men. Essentially, the Christmas story isn't just about Jesus coming to earth. The Christmas story is about Caesar has been oppressing you, and now there's a new king coming. The wise men and the seers for Caesar Augustus knew these things, and they told Herod and Caesar about it. So what did they do? They decided to kill all the babies. The Caesars understood the implications of this. It wasn't just about going to heaven one day. It was about a new kingdom coming to the earth now. Essentially, the message of Christmas, which this is good enough time as I need to share this because um, Christmas is coming. The, the message of Christmas isn't just Jesus coming to earth. The message of Christmas, although it is, that's fine. The message of Christmas is Caesar doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Whatever that thing is over your life, it doesn't get the last word. Addiction doesn't get the last word. It doesn't. Depression doesn't get the last word. It doesn't. Anger doesn't get the last word. It doesn't. These things don't get to say, let me say it this way. These things don't get to tell you what to do anymore because there's a new king in town. It's that kind of thing. So the Caesars kept one-upping their God claims. Like one Caesar named Domitian, he went to a place called the Agora where there was a pantheon of gods. And what he did is he put a roof over the gods and then he put a statue of himself over the top of them. And he told the whole empire, he said, see, not only am I the king of kings, but I am also the Lord of lords. Because if I wasn't, then the gods would have stopped me. But there was one group of people who didn't buy it. And that was the Jews. The Jews didn't buy it. They, they just thought they were statues anyway. So they weren't impressed. So they were prone to rioting. Like in 17 AD, there was a Jew named Judas the Zealot who told the Jews that the kingdom of God was at hand and it was time for them to take up arms against Rome because God was on their side. And the, some of the Jews believed him and took up arms against Rome and it did not end well. <laughs> and so... Tiberius, who was the Caesar at the time, put a man in charge of the region named Pilate. Pilate was a particularly cruel man. In 54 AD, Pilate was removed by the Roman Empire for being too cruel. They just, they couldn't deal with him anymore. But he put Pilate in charge of the region. And Pilate's entire, Pilate's entire job description was summed up in one sentence. Make sure the Jews don't riot. Think about your Bible. How preoccupied with the Jews rioting is Pilate? How many times does Pilate say, I don't want to do this, but if I don't, they'll riot? And here's what Caesar Tiberius did. Caesar Tiberius built Pilate a mansion overlooking the Mediterranean Sea in a town called Caesarea. And he said, you can keep this mansion as long as you keep those people under control. As long as you do that. Now, I want you to put on your thinking caps for a second. It's Monday night. I want you to think about your Bible, okay? I'm trying, to do, I'm trying to do less preaching tonight and more Bible sort of study, okay? I want you to think. 
what time of year was Jesus crucified? What, what was it called on the Jewish calendar? Passover, exactly. Good, good answer, right? I knew the rest of you were thinking that, exactly, right? He, he was brave enough to say it out loud. Passover, Passover. Now, I want to answer the question, why was Pilate even in Jerusalem? And the answer was, because it was Passover. Pilate came to Jerusalem along with Herod every single Passover. Now, why would he do that? What was Passover? Passover was a yearly celebration that the Jews had to celebrate God's will to deliver them from slavery. Well, in first century A.D., who was enslaving the Jews? Rome, the Caesars, right? And so here's what would happen. Every year at Passover, 300,000 Jews would come together and they would sing songs about God's will to deliver them from the occupying forces. Now let me ask you a question. If you're Pilate and your whole job description in life is to make sure they don't riot, is there an environment in the world more conducive to a riot than Passover? 300,000 people singing songs about God's will to deliver them from occupying forces? No way. So every year, Pilate descended upon Jerusalem to make sure that they didn't riot. He wanted to make sure that order was kept with fear and domination. And here's how he did it. Next slide. This is a Roman aquila. It's an eagle on a stick. You could see the little flag stick thing there. And what Pilate would do is he would find the biggest war horse he could find, and he would get on a chariot. Think about your Roman movies. You always got the head guy on a horse and a chariot. And he would have platoons of soldiers, and he would descend into Jerusalem with an eagle on a stick. And here was the rule. When he rode by you, you got to picture this, 300,000 people singing songs about God's will to deliver us from him. And yet he shows up, with his signal of dominance. And he would hold the eagle on the stick over your head. And here was the rule. You can sing what you like, but when the eagle on a stick comes out, you have to stop singing and acknowledge that he was still in charge. Essentially it was, you can sing whatever you want, but you will acknowledge that I still rule your life. And he used the eagle on a stick to do it, which leads me to this observation. What empire in the world today uses an eagle on a stick to show their dominance when they're occupying another country? Okay. Things haven't changed all that much, have they? So Pilate would do this. This is no different than me and you. No different. How many times have you come in here on a Sunday and you've sung songs about God's will to deliver you from whatever's oppressing you, only to go home and go to bed at night and know that depression still has you. You go to bed at night knowing your addiction still has you. You go to bed at night knowing that, that rejection still has you, that anger still has you, the lust still has you. This is not just about Pilate and Jews and Passover. This is about me and it's about you. And it's about our tendency to sing about God's deliverance without ever actually experiencing it. We're singing about it, but at the end of the day, we know we go to bed with the eagle on the stick right in front of us. Which leads me to this question. What's your eagle on a stick? What's that thing? Despite the fact that you know God wants to deliver you from it, what's the thing that's always right there? To see how quickly this becomes much more relevant to us today than about heaven and hell one day. 
Now, to understand this story fully, I need to show you. To understand this story fully, I need to show you a map. Okay? And then we're going to read some of these stories. Next slide. This is a map of first century Jerusalem. Okay? Now, I've, um, I don't know if those lights are on a dimmer or not, or if it's like all on or all off, but maybe you guys can see. Can you see my little red dot? Okay. I've never done drugs in my life, but I cannot hold this still. All right? But just, but just to show you, okay, because you've got you to see this to understand. All right? Pilate lived up here somewhere. Caesarea was up here somewhere. And he would descend into Jerusalem through the F right here. And he would come in this gate. There was a gate right here. And the reason why was because right here was the Roman platoons. That's where they lived. So Pilate would come in this way, right there. Now, this dark spot right here, that is called Gehenna. That is hell. Okay? 15 of the 18 times Jesus says hell, he's not talking about a place people go when they die. He's talking about the town rubbish dump on the southwest corner of the city. That is Gehenna, okay, right there. So Pilate would come from Caesarea right through Gehenna into the city. So the gate that Pilate used to get into the city would be called the gates of, ah, and the gates of hell will not Okay, see how this is starting to make a little more sense. So Pilate would come this way, right through hell, into the barracks. And he was riding a big giant war horse, all right? So Pilate's riding a war horse. Now let me test your knowledge of the Bible, okay? On the same day Pilate's coming in on a war horse, who's coming in on the other side of the city? Jesus, and he's riding a... Donkey. So on one end of the city, Pilate's coming in on a war horse. On the other end of the city, Jesus is coming in on a donkey. Let me show you Jesus' path, okay? We're gonna, I'm going to show this to you, and then we're going to read it, all right? Here's the temple. This is a place called the Mount of Olives, okay, right here. And this is the road that goes from the temple to the Mount of Olives, okay? Now right here is underneath the compass, right here, is a place called Bethany. Bethany, okay? And then right here is a place called Bethpage. So you got Bethany, then Bethpage, and then right here, where the road and the Mount of Olives meet, right there, is a cemetery. It is creatively called Mount of Olives Cemetery. Now, it's not what you're picturing. I, I just saw this a couple months ago. It is the single largest cemetery I have ever seen in my life outside of Arlington National. There are literally thousands of people buried there, including the prophet Zechariah. In the first century, and Haggai, and Hosea, and Malachi, a bunch of them are, are buried in there. And, and by the first century, here's what they did. They charged people a premium to be buried there. And here's why. The Old Testament taught that when Messiah set up his kingdom, he would do so from the Mount of Olives. So here's what they told people. When Messiah sets up his kingdom, he's going to do so from the Mount of Olives and there'll be a resurrection. And so you want to be buried on the Mount of Olives so that when Messiah sets up his kingdom, you'll have the shortest walk into the city. So they charged people a premium to be buried there in the first century. Okay. Now I want you to think about this for a second. 
If you go to a cemetery and you look inside it, what do you see a lot of? Tombstones, exactly. This is no different. Literally, my guess would be into the tens of thousands of tombstones are sitting in a, in a cemetery on the side of the Mount of Olives. So when you go by a cemetery, you see a whole lot of stones. All right, now it's very important. I want, you to, I want you to say that with me with some 49ers gusto, okay? When you, when you go by a cemetery, you see a whole lot of stones. Very good, all right? When you go by a cemetery, you see a whole lot of stones, all right? So you have Bethany, Bethpage, Mount of Olives Cemetery, where there's a whole lot of stones. Right here you have Gethsemane, which is where Jesus was arrested, ultimately. So, so Pilate comes from Caesarea through hell, Riding a war horse. Jesus comes from Bethany to Bethpage, past the Mount of Olives Cemetery, where there's a whole lot of stones, and he's riding a donkey. All right? Now, that is the backdrop. With that as the backdrop, let's read the scriptures. Next slide. I'm going to go pretty fast now. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives. See, now that you've seen the map, it's very easy to see. It was right Literally right there. Here's another writer's uh, view on it. Next slide. This is uh, Matthew, I think. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring her to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. Keep going. No, no, back up one. Hit it twice. Go forward. Oh, no. There's a missing slide. Back up. You're going to have to trust me what the rest of this says. It says, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them right away, and he'll send them right away. And then Matthew says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated and riding on a donkey. A king is riding on a donkey. Wait a minute, don't kings ride? Aha. Matthew says no. Remember the prophet says that when you see your king riding on a donkey, this is really, this is really a good thing. Now, in Hebrew culture, this is something called a remez. A remez is a hint or an illusion. It would be something like this. If America was suddenly taken over by occupying forces, and these occupying forces forbidden us from reading Scripture. So let's say they confiscated all Scripture. All Scriptures are confiscated, and they confiscated all electronic Scriptures. And let's say they, let's say they succeeded. No more Bible in all of America. Would the church live or die? The church would live. Actually, history says you'd thrive. That the church thrives in persecution. Why? Because in persecution, no one has the time or the energy to sit around and argue about petty, stupid doctrines, and they get about doing what God called us to do, which is love each other, meet each other's needs, and protect one another. Okay? So, so if, if an occupying force took away all of our Bibles, what's the one thing they couldn't take? Our memory. They can't take what's in your head. Right? So let's say we forbid you from quoting scripture to one another. Here's the problem. They don't know it. 
So here's what we would do. We would remind each other of God's word by quoting half of it, knowing that the other person had memorized the other half and doesn't have to say it out loud. So it'd be sort of like this if I said, hey, remember, remember, for God so loved the world that he gave it. See, you can do that. Hey, remember, we know that all things work together for the good of... Hey, remember, if, if you confess where you've messed up, he's faithful and just... See? See, we could do that. all the, the Jews did this all the time to the Romans. So when Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, the question you should ask is, which prophet? He doesn't name him. Matter of fact, all four Gospels quote him without naming him. And they only quote half the prophecy. Why? Because the Jews had memorized all of it. So what Matthew did was he quoted one half of the prophecy, knowing that the Jews would complete it in their head. The question is, what's the whole prophecy? Here it is. Next slide. This is from Zechariah. He was the prophet. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will take away the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Do you see why Matthew doesn't quote the whole thing? He's partial to living. But Matthew is reminding Jewish people, hey, hey, when you see your king coming from the Mount of Olives on a donkey, you can know that that's the beginning of the end of the war horse. Which, by the way, that's just true in history. Anytime someone purposely chooses to oppress another group of people, there's always a guy on a donkey coming in to save the day. Nobody remembers the guy running South Africa in 1965. Nobody remembers him, but everybody remembers Nelson Mandela. Everybody remembers Gandhi. The only, the only reason we remember Pilate's name is because he was attached to the guy on the donkey. Do you see how this is going now? Ne ne next slide. Here's another writer's view on it. I think this is Matthew again. It says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. Hang on a second. What is sitting where the road goes down the Mount of Olives? A cemetery. What's in a cemetery? A whole heap of stones. Right. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king. Hang on a second. Who's coming in on the other side of the city? Pilate. And he's riding a war horse. Who's the one guy you do not want to hear thousands of people singing about a new king? That guy. So people would sense are telling people to hush, right? It's sort of like this. Hey, you, you parents, have, have your children ever said something that was true at the wrong time and it embarrassed you? Right? This is, this is okay. So, so I, I was at a party once and there was like 25, 30 of us. And um, I was over in, in this side making small talk with six people. And this little five-year-old girl came up and said, Mommy, is that the guy you said was creepy? <laughs> now that's what I'm talking about. Now, now. Now, to be fair, I know the guy she's talking about, and he is a bit creepy. But the, but the mother was going, not now. Right? So that's what's going on here. Jesus is coming in on a donkey. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are going, hey, remember, when a king's coming in on a donkey, it's the beginning of the end of the war horse, and people start getting excited. Hey, a new king, a new king. And people would sense her going, not now. Can this not wait eight days? Not now. Watch this. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Next slide. This keeps going. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, then these stones are going to cry out. In other words, it's my time. Either you're going to call me king, or this is going to get really weird really quick. It's going to be a bad episode of The Walking Dead. And remember, if it's a zombie, you've got to stab it in the eyeball. Remember? You can't just do this. You've got to stab it in the eye hole. These stones are going to cry out. Western pastors tickle me because they take the Bible literally. Unless it doesn't fit. Right? So they'll, take the, they'll say the Bible's literal until they read, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Then they're like, oh, no, he's just kidding. <laughs> the Bible's literal until it says that there was a whore coming to earth on a horse. <laughs> right? Revelation 6 says there's a great whore coming on a horse with seven swords coming out of her mouth. I mean, hopefully that's a metaphor, right? I mean, honestly... There's nothing scarier than a whore on a horse, right? right? <laughs> oh my God, a whore on a horse! How scary would that be? So, so the way Western pastors sometimes teach this, they'll go, they'll go, shh, 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 listen, shh, shh, shh. You better keep praising him, because if you lose your praise, that that pavement out there is going to cry out. Which makes literally no sense. Like the, the rocks out there are going to go, Wah! Come on. Where was Jesus standing? He's standing in front of a cemetery. What's in a cemetery? A whole lot of stones. You've got to consider where he was. Next slide. Oh, see, there's my slide. I told you it was there. Next slide. So, just to remind you, so Pilate comes in this way, through hell on a, are you with me? On a war horse. Jesus comes this way, past the Mount of Olives Cemetery, where there's a whole lot of stones riding on a donkey. So let's go back and answer the questions. One, why was Jesus killed? Next slide. Why kill him? Jesus was killed because Jesus confronted people who were controlling the temple and working with Pilate in order to use people's spiritual guilt to live in mansions. Can't do that. Well, why was Pilate so readily available at 2 a.m.? Because Pilate worked out you can't dictate people just politically. You have to have religious people to help you. So what Pilate did was he went to the priest and he said, Listen, Tiberius has given me this incredible job to keep them from writing. If you help me keep them from rioting, I'll pay you backhanded. What archaeologists have found in some of the high priest homes is bottles of wine that were, would have been worth well over $50,000 in the day. How did they get that? Because Pilate was paying them backhanded to help him keep people under control. When you read the four Gospels, do you ever notice that the people have a certain fear of the priests? Why were they scared of the priests? Why? Why would you be scared of a pastor? 
Why, why, how, what's so scary about those guys? Well, the reason they were scared of the priest is because they knew that the priests were in bed with Pilate and all the priest had to do was to whisper in Pilate's ear that they were rabble-rousers and they'd be beaten with 39 lashes and crucified. And so the priest could control the people. So why was Pilate willing to get up at 2 a.m.? Because he was in bed with the priests. This was something that would have happened a lot. This was not an uncommon thing. Hey, that guy is starting his own kingdom. The priest became glorified tattletales. And so Jesus confronted him. Essentially, he says, I'm tired of you being the oppressor. Here's what happened. The priest ran the temple with the same system of fear and control as the Roman Empire. Here's what they said. You behave or we'll torture you. Listen to me. Any system of religion that uses the fear of punishment to coerce behavior is just empire. It's just another form of slavery. Any system of religion that says, you better do what God says for you to do or he's going to throw you in a torture chamber is just slavery, empire, and there's a Latin word for it. It's called bulimus crapimus. It's just not productive. It's what Jesus died to overcome. To show that Caesar doesn't get the last word. That's not the kind of system that God rules the world with. It's not the kingdoms. Of, even if there's a 25-foot cross over the building, if that's the message, it's not the kingdoms of this Christ. It's the kingdoms of this world. So my second question is this. Why was Pilate inherited in Jerusalem? Well, because it was Passover. Why were they getting out of bed at 2 a.m.? They were already in bed with the priest. Why was Jesus killed? Because he was confronting this entire corrupt system of power. Now, my third question was this. Remember my third question? What does this have to do with you? <laughs> so what? 2013 in Hayward. Shane, great history lesson. I learned a lot about the Bible tonight. Thank you. So, it has everything to do with us. Next slide. <laughs> this is John's take on it. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Notice how John quotes Zechariah again, but he doesn't quote the whole thing. Why? Because he was partial to living. Watch what happens. Next slide. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is going after him. <laughs> In other words, we've tried everything we could do to rule the temple like war horses, but everybody's still going after the guy on the donkey. Everybody's still following the servant. We've tried to lead with our fist, and everybody's going after the guy leading with hugs. Hmm. So what does this mean for us? Next slide. There are two ways to enter the city. Let me say it this way. There's two ways to get where you want to go in life. As a ruling empire or a humble servant. There's two ways to be a husband, sir. Rule! I am the head of this house. Okay. Uh, you're the head. She's the neck. She's turning you any way she wants. Uh. In my experience... 
The one in charge doesn't have to tell people they're in charge. If you have to tell people you're in charge, you're not in charge. And if you rule your house as a ruling empire, eventually the whole thing breaks down. It just doesn't work. There's two ways to be a wife. You can, or you can make everybody in your family better. There's two ways to be a dad. You can parent your children like a war horse, like a ruling empire. You can parent your children as someone who tries to get up underneath them and make them better. There's two ways to do it. May we say it this way. I'm going to say the same thing four different ways. You choose which one speaks to you. There's two ways to get where you want to go in life, as an oppressor or as a liberator. You can hold people down or you can free them to be. Two ways to do it. May we say it this way. There's two ways to get where you want to go in life, from the gates of hell or from the house of God. You can bring hell to your whole situation or you can bring the presence of God to your situation. There's two ways to do it. Maybe the easiest way to remember is this way. There's two ways to be or to get where you want to go. On a war horse or on a donkey. Two ways to do it. Let, let, let's apply it even more specifically. Next slide. There's two ways to handle conflict. It's a war horse or as a donkey. They don't agree with you. So What? So what? You could come at it this way. You will see it my way, or I am right, you are wrong, I am in, you are out, and I will destroy you. Or you can sit down at a table with a cup of coffee and talk it through. And in most cases, just let it go. There's two ways to handle conflict. There's two ways to handle tragedy. You could be a war horse. You could be a donkey. As disciples of Jesus, Jesus chose to lead on a donkey. Let's say it this way. There's two ways to handle a business. If you're here today and you own your own business, listen to me. There's two ways you can handle your employee. You can be a war horse. And in my experience, employees of war horses steal from them. Or you can be a donkey and you can come up underneath your employees and you can serve them and you can make them better. And in my experience, employees of people like that stay for a very long time. There's two ways to do it. Let's say it this way. Next slide. There's two ways to lead your ministry. You could be a war horse. I am the man of God here. You will listen to me. Or you can be a donkey. And everybody, that, everybody that's underneath you, they can know you love them because you're up underneath them serving them. Making sure they're getting better. Making sure they're shining. You always want to follow a leader who celebrates you. And if you want to follow a leader who celebrates you, doesn't it stand to reason that people will want to follow you if you celebrate them? There's two ways to run your family. You can be a war horse. You can be a donkey. Let's get real specific. Ma'am, there's two ways to be a wife. You can be a critical, complaining, cantankerous person that your husband secretly prays for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief. You can be a woman that your husband secretly thinks about stabbing himself in the neck with a spoon <laughs> rather than to listen to your voice one more second. Ma'am, I'll do the men in a second. Just give me a second. You ladies, 
how do you talk to your husband when he leaves his underwear on the floor for the 18,000th time? Are you a war horse? Pick up your underwear, you stupid idiot. Of course, you've just insulted the intelligence of a man that you would fully expect to die for you if an intruder came in your house tonight over a pair of underwear. I find that extremely short-sighted. You can be a war horse. Pick up your underwear, you stupid idiot. Or you could be a donkey. Oh. The sweet, loving man of honor husband of mine, the, the father of my children, the man who would gladly die for all of us if an intruder came in tonight. He's left his nasty, stinking drawers on the floor again. But you know what? I know that he would die for all of us if an intruder came in, so I'll pick up his underwear for him and I'll count it an even trade. There's always donkey. Now for you men, pick up your drawers, hey? And for the love of God, light a match, huh? Honestly. Right? Can I get an amen there? Just light a match. Light a match, let it burn two seconds, blow it out, and then vigorously waft it. Vigorously. Sir, there's two ways to be a husband. You can be a husband who slowly but surely builds resentment in your wife till eventually she hates you. It didn't start there. It never gets there overnight. It's just slow but sure. Let's say it this way. There's two ways to handle it, sir, when your wife falls asleep too early. You can be a war horse. Get up! I have needs! <laughs> or, or you can be a donkey. Oh. The sweet, beautiful, sexy woman and mother of my children is tired. <laughs> I'll just let her sleep. There's <laughs> always two ways. There's two ways to handle it when the girl at KFC messes up your order. You can be a war horse and you can tell her all about herself. You can be a donkey and you can restore dignity to someone who made a mistake. And by the way, you live in America. A land where all of us have running water and you drove a motorized vehicle on a paved road to a store that prepares food for you, we have nothing to complain about. If you can't serve the kingdom of God over a bucket of chicken, what is wrong with you? There's two ways to handle it when you stop by the grocery store and you end up in the line with the slowest cashier in the store. Have you ever been in line at the bank and you always seem to be behind the guy with the real big bag? And then you're next in line and the three tellers go on lunch break. There's two ways to handle it then. Two ways to handle it when someone cuts you off in Livermore Hayward traffic. Two ways. Two ways to handle it when you're going eight miles an hour for an hour and a half trying to get here from San Jose. 
two ways to handle that. And in the middle of that, you know, there's always that one crazy person that thinks if they just change lanes strategically, they'll be able to go faster than everybody else. There's two ways to handle that guy. You can be a war horse and come up beside him and point your finger at the sky and let him know you think he's number one. <laughs> or two. <laughs> or you can be a donkey. You can consider him better. You know, central... You realize I've went from very general to very specific now. In general, there's a lot of keys to building a great church. But if you want to build a great church in the city, the best way you can do it is get a reputation for considering others better. And the best way you can get a reputation for considering others better is not from a pastor screaming or putting a billboard up saying, we love you better. It's when each individual member of that body is known in their sphere of influence that says, hey, these people treat others better. Considering someone else better is central to understanding Jesus. It's central to Christianity. Here's my question. It's not just about going to heaven or hell. The cross is about a lifestyle that considers other people's better. It's about a lifestyle where you wake up every day and you choose the higher road by choosing to be lesser. You choose the better path by choosing to be more humble. I pray that you all have the courage. This is, this is not a decision you make one time and it sticks. And this is not a decision you'll make in the heat of the moment. The choice to be a donkey is the choice that you make before the argument happens. Before the stress hits. It's something you make beforehand. I'm asking you to be brave enough to partner with your pastor and together you choose to be donkeys. To treat other people as if they matter more than you. All right? Let's pray together. And um, I want to, if, if you're here today and um, you're sitting next to your spouse, I want you to take them by the hand or by the arm or by the leg. Or if they really disgust you, just rub elbows. <laughs> okay? Right? And I want everybody to be brave enough to ask this question. Okay? This is the question I want you to ask of the Lord. Lord, give me the courage to see things different. And the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. All right? Lord, we ask for the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. Now I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, where have I been a donkey this week? And more importantly, where have I been a war horse? Lord, speak to my heart now. Where have I been a war horse? See, ladies, if you've been a war horse to your husband this week, I want you to squeeze his hand or his leg. Don't cut the circulation off. All right? And when you do that, that's your way of saying, look, I'm sorry, and I'm not going to be perfect with this, but I'm going to strive with all my heart to be a donkey. And you husbands, I'm asking you to accept that as an apology. Don't make her explain it. Just move forward. You husbands, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, where have I been a war horse to my wife this week? If you've been a war horse... Why don't you squeeze her hand or her leg or wherever you're touching. And in so doing, it's your way of saying, you know what? 
I'm not going to be perfect with this, but I'm, I'm going to strive to be Christ-like. I'm going to strive to be a donkey. And even in arguments and disagreements, I, I want to be able to talk them through in a kind tone of voice. Would you just do that now? Third question. What's your eagle on a stick? What's the thing that reminds you that it's in charge? The Bible says as you worship, Christ builds a throne. So this Christmas, every time you sing, oh, come let us adore him, I want you to remember that that song isn't just about going to heaven. It's about the acknowledgement that Caesar doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. He's Christ. He's Christ. He's the Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is. So right now, right under your breath, don't say it out loud. I just want you to, I want you to tell God, what is your eagle on a stick? What is the thing that oppresses you? What's the thing you just can't get a hold of? And I want you to ask him to be king over that. Set you free. Amen. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me be your guest tonight. I hope that was a real blessing to you. I hope you have a greater understanding of the word than you did when you walked in. I hope that you are brave enough to apply this. If you don't apply it, it'll mean nothing to you. You'll know more about history and more about the Bible than you did before, but it will literally mean nothing to you. I'm asking you to be brave enough every morning to wake up and choose to be a donkey that day. Okay? God bless. Grace and peace.